If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and this week... John, after you lamenting the fact that my Vespa, do you remember it was nine euros to fill up? It was actually 13 euros. Oh, oh, oh there's inflation said, for There's you. inflation for you. There's inflation for you. But I mean, I know that you are lumbering, you lover of the four wheel vehicle is lumbering with a hundred quid, but we're going to talk about energy because it's, it's the big story yeah. of, it's the big economic story of this year. For sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, what is quite interesting is that when energy prices are low, nobody cares about it. So economists and all the world are worried about tech and tech startups and tech this, that, that. And then when energy prices increase, you realize, wow, energy really, you know, the way we talk about the cost of living, John. Energy is actually the cost of life. Because you know it from yes. your biologist. Well, it's, isn't there, there is a word for that, the homeostasis. Ooh, I like which is which Ooh, I think I, I like I, it, and that's I mean, can I call you Plato from now? Oh, indeed, Aristotle, <laughs> Xenophon, the first economist, Xenophon Davis. It's quite a good like that. Yeah, that could be my stage name. That's like what it is, Xenophon Davis. Ladies sounds, and gentlemen, Xenophon Davis. He's, you know, you see, it sounds like a jazz player. <laughs> yeah, Xenophon. But homeostasis is the just to I'm stick my my Xenophon my Xenophon hat on me. Is any process that living things used actively maintain, you know, stable condition? So, so in other energy, words, so eating, for example, exactly, exactly, right. it's life. Well, and, this and is so. So, in an economic sense, homeostasis, the energy that we that use we put in, in to generate the economy, exactly. Okay, well, that, that means, so this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about energy this week because it's really the cost of life has gone up, right? Not the cost of living, the cost of life. So you have two things. You have heat, power, yeah. and food. Yeah. And this is what's gone up. And the interesting thing, therefore, is if central banks decide to act against this inflation by raising interest rates dramatically, which is what they seem to be doing, yeah. what will actually happen is nothing. Because the cost of energy is not going to be dependent on the rate of interest. 
So the rate of interest is the cost of money. Yeah. Right? Right. So okay. Quite okay, a different, okay. This is quite a different thing. Yeah. And there's a very high chance that central banks will precipitate a recession, maybe a global recession. We'll quite talk about this later. In order to bring down inflation, but the tools they're using won't bring down the actual source of inflation, which is energy prices. Wow, and we get yes. This double whammy. So this is something we'll yeah. think about. But, it's, but do you know what is interesting? The way Russia have are trying to turn the tables by they want all their oil payments in rubles. Well, they're absolutely. Now, this is a fascinating thing because remember I told you years ago when I was doing that a lot of that emerging market work mm. all through the 90s. So I was in countries like Serbia, in Russia, in countries like Israel, Latin America, all these sort of things. What was always crucial to stability was the price of the currency, right? And once the, once the government lost the price of the currency, so for example, the peso or the rand in South Africa yeah, yeah. or the ruble in Russia or any currency, the dinar in Yugoslavia, once that starts to fall, right? Once the price of your currency starts to fall, it creates unbelievable internal instability. And what the West was hoping by freezing the central bank reserves of the Russian central bank, that they would actually take away the ability of the Russians to maintain their currency. So the reason how currency works is that if you want to increase your currency, if you want to make it stable or make it stronger, you need to buy your currency to increase the demand for it yeah. and sell dollars. Yeah. So in order to sell dollars, you need to have dollars, right? So therefore, that's where you need to reserves. So reserves are like a war chest to be used in the event of a calamity. Yeah. So the West took away the Russians' ability to do that. Now the Russians are saying, hold on a second, we are going to create a demand for rubles by demanding that you guys pay for your gas and oil in rubles and not dollars. So they're de-dollarizing the Russian exchange trade. And that then creates a demand for rubles that pushes up the price of yeah. rubles. And they therefore try to insulate their people from the fall in the ruble that the West hoped would be one of the leading indicators of chaos. But surely the reaction to that is no. no. <laughs> You're absolutely, it should be no. Yeah. It should no. be. It's, Either here's some dollars or here's some rand or whatever, take it or leave it. But of course, the Russians will probably then say, okay, we'll leave it, right? Yeah. And therefore, they cut off energy exports straight away. Now, that's their bluff. But Germany, at the, at, by the same measure, this week have, or you, the EU actually, in general, have just done a deal with the US to import 15 billion cubic meters. Cubic of gas. liters, hopefully. <laughs> no meters. Didn't, oh, yes, okay. Yeah, of gas, of natural gas. So, so, I mean, obviously, the whole thing is about the Russians trying to generate a demand for their currency. Yeah. The West trying not to be hostage to the Russians. What is clear is that the Russians have tried to call the bluff of the West on a number of occasions now. And in the last little while, that has not been the case. And we're going to talk to Sean Evers in the Gulf. Oh, yes. Great. Straight away about yeah. energy. But what we're going to do is talk about, you know, energy has to come from somewhere. Yeah. So you cut it off some area, it comes from somewhere. That What you're saying is you cut the German pipeline off from Russia but they get the gas from somewhere else. Yes. And it's just a matter of man managing the transition. But, you know, the, the fascinating thing about energy is it's always been there. Did you know the fifth biggest industry in the United States in 1850 <laughs> was the whaling industry? Oh, right. We killed, well, the Americans killed 
hundreds, thousands. That was of kind people. of um, a base out of Nantucket, and it was based out of New Bedford. You're New Bedford, absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, that, and and that I tell area. you, because I'm reading at the moment Moby Dick. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. First lines of Moby Dick, John. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on the shore, I thought I would sail about a little bit and see the watery part of the world. That's the, <laughs> the watery part the of the world. Watery, but the it. opening part of, you know, I tell you now, Moby Dick, fascinating book, right? But it's all about whaling. Then you do a little bit of research and realise that whaling was the fifth biggest industry in the United States in the 1850s, okay? Yeah. And it was, you're right, it was out of New Bedford. The reason I know New Bedford is many years ago, John, uh, I had to hightail it out of Montreal where I was working as a plongeur. Now, a plongeur... A plongeur? A plongeur is the worst job in any kitchen. So the plongeur is the guy beneath the kitchen porter. Right. right? So you're washing dishes. You're washing dishes, but you're washing everything. You're washing right. kitchens, right? Right. So you're actually the KP, but you're even lower than the KP. And I was doing that in Montreal. And I thought to myself, this is not a good use of my time in French in, uh, in Montreal, getting paid in Canadian dollars. And there were fellas that I knew down in Hyannis in Cape Cod. Yes. So for the last month, I decided I was going to go to Cape Cod. And I got the I got the bus from Montreal to Boston. And I got the bus then from Boston to Cape Cod, past New Bedford. And I was a gardener, John. Did I ever tell you I was a gardener? <laughs> that just gardener. does not fit, Macker. That does gardener. not fit. I was a gardener in Hyannis. So I got a job as a gardener. <laughs> And I got grief, fired grief. the second oh, day. Oh, <laughs> of course you did. I know, I know. You know Why, what, what, what happened was, For what in particular? So this I was really excited because <laughs> I was a gardener and I was given one of those motorized lawnmowers that you oh, sat cool. up on, right? Yeah. And of course, everyone got really stoned. Right, <laughs> right yeah. So you got up it's in the gardener, morning. Yeah, you're a gardener, right? You get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, yeah. a massive split, and you get on the Wake oak. and bake. Yeah, exactly. And you'd be grand. Look at the... 18 or something like this, right? It was, but of course the problem was that we were doing these huge big lawns in Hyannis, like the, wasn't the Kennedys, but those types of people, right? So these massive lawns that were down to the sea, yeah. right? And I hadn't really twigged because we'd only these tiny little gardens in Monkstown, right? So the second day I saw a grass snake, right? Right. And I thought it'd be great crack to chase the grass snake around the place in the lawnmower, right? Right. Okay, because I was a little bit, you know, Let's just say that the senses weren't great. So I was weaving around after the grass, right after the grass, taking my own little world, you know, la, 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 looking at the Atlantic, snake, and all I hear is this roar. And of course, I hadn't realized I'd been doing it for about an hour. And you know the way football pitches, when you when you actually do them properly. Oh yeah, they're in lines. They're in lines. So, yeah. And there's these bright fucking squiggles all around the place. And you're one, and I'm off my head. You're one says, gives you the red card. And of course, we'd know, we'd know. Visas or anything. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. You couldn't come back and say, well, my, my employment rights are. <laughs> you know? So I was turfed out for being a little bit stoned and looking for grass snakes. <laughs> just being a crab gardener. Being a crab gardener. But that's New Bedford. Anyway, that's right. where Moby Dick was, right? Right. And the whole story about Moby Dick is, it's amazing. It's got racism, it's got colonialism, it's got end of religion. It's got every single theme you could possibly have in a book is in Moby Dick. Now, obviously, the main part of the story is Ahab, who's the boss man yeah. of the whaling ship, is going after Moby Dick because he's obsessed by Moby Dick because he claims that Moby Dick, the whale, bit his leg off. 
Yeah. It may, yeah. might have been something else off as well. Right. Like, right. And he's really evil, right? And the whole guy, Ishmael is the first guy. But there's all sorts of things. There's, there's paganism in it. There are Polynesian harpooners. It's an extraordinary book. But again, what it's all about is this whaling industry. And of course, what happened in the whaling industry was that they used the oil from sperm whales to lubricate, to light everything, yes. but also to lubricate all the machines of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And eventually, the Americans had 460, the biggest whaling fleet, with 460 ships in the 1860s and 1870s. By the 1880s, they had six. It had completely collapsed wow. the industry. Why? Because they found oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Copper oil elsewhere. So it's interesting that energy has always been part of the sort of background noise. In the context of whaling and Moby Dick, you know, Herman Melville wrote about, about this, this American classic. But what it shows you is that the economy has always been linked to energy. And right now we have exactly the same thing. Our economy is linked to energy. And if you look at the history of economics, the history of economics is all about the history of energy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. From yeah. the very first grain stores in Sumeria in, you know, 5,000 yeah. BCs yeah. to Russia today. So I'll tell you what we're going to do is we're going to leave Moby Dick and New okay. Bedford, if you don't <laughs> and Hyannis. Anyway, let's go to the Gulf. Let's talk to Sean Evers and let's talk energy. Now, I'm delighted to have a very, very old friend on the line from the Gulf from Dubai. Sean Evers and I have known each other almost as long as John and I have known each other since we were 12 years old, our first day in secondary school. Sean, how are you? It's great to see you. I'm good. All good. Tell me, I mean, I've, we've got a small, we've got a very, very small task today, which is the history and politics of oil. The last hundred years start now. Now, the reason I want to, I want to talk about the politics of energy. You're, you've been running Gulf Intelligence in the Gulf for what, the last 15 years? You're deeply involved in the, in the energy sector in general. Give me a sense power and energy, that sort of link between the, the oil industry, we're seeing it now with Putin, but this is just the latest incarnation of oil as power, energy as power. You know, give me a sense of, of the, the, that link over the course of the last, let's say, 50 or 60 odd years. Well, I think it's, it's, there's obviously a lot of strings potentially to that bow, but I think we are in a moment where history and present are colliding, right, in terms of the drama and the war in, in Ukraine, in the sense that Europe is facing, you know, when you think of the timing of Putin's moment, if you like, energy and the associated macroeconomic trends of inflation are very much in his timing because you've got everything already elevated at very high prices and you've got this extra layer of, of chunky inflation to come and it's going to kick us all in the rear and probably in the front as well. And that is the timing of this moment. And in that moment, there's the effort by Germany in particular, but the rest of Europe to see how they can reconfigure their energy supply and then when you look in the mirror of that, you're looking straight down the barrel of history because how did you get into this position in the first place? Uh, yeah, let's explore, context, that. let's explore that. In the context of Europe. And, you know, Germany is the Achilles heel here, ultimately. And you'd have to say in all of their wisdom and all of their amazing performance as a, one of the world's top three exporters and the manufacturers of the most amazing kit, 
and have been, you know, since the Second World War, phenomenal economic growth and all of those things. They have had a major blind spot on energy and I think to a great extent on Russia. You know, Merkel, ultimately her legacy may be that she gave uh, Vladimir Putin cover for so long as a statesman, which is maybe a whole nother subject. But ultimately, Germany is very vulnerable. And the immediate legacy of that, you might point to 10 years ago when they turned off all the nuclear power plants after Fukushima. And they had 17 power plants in 2011. They now have three. They had six at the end of 2021. Six nuclear power plants left out of the 17. They closed three just a few months ago, and the final three were to be closed at the end of this year. Germany is in a very vulnerable place historically into this current moment, both their own politics, obviously, but in terms of their vulnerability on energy security and their inability to confront this moment in any immediate sense because of their vulnerability to energy. It's also a cataclysmic change moment because if you look at the 50 years we've come through, the last window of comparable restructuring is 50 years ago in the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War of 73 and the OPEC oil embargo of the West. And in that moment, structural change happened. Cars became a lot more efficient. Oil that was used to move this way to that way now moved the other way. The economic activity that came from a barrel of oil 50 years ago, now you only need half a barrel to get the same amount of economic activity. And in that moment, there was storage came out of that, the creation of the International Energy Agency, where every member of the OECD had to commit to 90 days of energy storage in the aftermath of the 73, I was at 73, 74, the creation of the IEA, which is now based in Paris, the OECD. And that became the sort of the insurance policy for, for the OECD countries, this huge reservoir of energy storage, which of course they're desperately looking at at the moment as to what it can serve at this time. But it was a point in which a lot changed. You know, the Middle East now sends very little energy to the to the West. Really, the, U, the, the U.S. still takes oil from from Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia has kept sending sending exporting oil to the United States, principally because of it wants to maintain a geopolitical relationship. It could get a much better price going east to Asia, and similarly, all of the gas going into Europe, obviously predominantly, as we know, fed by Russia as the biggest supplier. But Middle East gas in the form of LNG, there's absolutely zero pipelines from the Gulf to Europe. There is obviously from North Africa. So all of this aftermath of 73, the 74 oil embargo restructured the map of energy flow. What was, you know, coming out of a period, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, when the Middle East nationalized all of its natural resources. Prior to that, of course, the colonial period had given all of that energy was held in the hands of the Western powers, the majors. So Aramco, you know, that's an acronym for what was the American Arabian Oil Company. BP ran the oil company in Iraq and in Iran. All the Western powers in the aftermath of the Second World War owned, and they gave a few pennies to the Arabs for all of the energy they took west. And 
in the 60s and 70s, the Arabs took it all back, nationalized all of those natural resources. And with the big shock of the 70s, uh, on the back of the Seventh-day War, when the West more or less supported Israel's takeover of Arab land, it changed the map and the flow, most importantly, of energy. And now we're seeing that again. Europe are changing the structure of energy flow. What errors will they make? So that's fascinating, Sean, because I'll just tell you also for the listeners, Sean was also born and lived in Israel. When Sean, when I first met him, he lived in Israel. He was a legacy of... Or as he likes to say, Palestine. Palestine, Sean. Palestine, absolutely. (laughs) And his dad was working in the Irish UN over there. And of course, a lot of the wars in, in your part of the world that you've lived through up until your adult life have always had, or in a lot of cases, have had energy in the background. Yeah, clearly energy has, I mean, the, the, the flow of energy, the access to energy, you know, when you think of the infamous coup in Iran in the 50s when democracy was embedding, when the government there was looking to nationalize their energy resources, the CIA and the, the MI6 and the overthrew that government, and, and, and many other ways where there has been overt and covert engagement on the flow of of energy in in this region. You'd have to say in this current window of time, it's less sort of tumultuous, but incredible alignment. So the ownership of the energy resources now in the Gulf predominantly, but elsewhere, are held very tightly and, and are produced in partnership with major international companies but they are somewhat held stable. The geopolitics around that and the muscular nature of, of the ownership of those resources are now looking you know, quite interesting in context of the partnership because we no longer talk about OPEC. We now talk about OPEC plus, which is, you know, it, it sounds like a steroid, but ultimately it, it is a kind of a, a geopolitical steroid where OPEC was losing its sort of influence on global energy markets and did a deal with Russia and a number of other producers about seven years ago, a loose federation of of, of producers. But now OPEC plus has Russia in the kitchen with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And and with that power, obviously, they control more like 50% of world supply rather than 30%. And with that, a great amount of influence. So the big question at the moment and pressure, if you like, is building on the alignment of Saudi and Russia and can the West force a divorce there? And what do you think? I think the timing is bad for the West on that particular point. And this is why, you know, you'd have to say in Putin's weakness at the moment, and that's generally the Western narrative, he's miscalculated and this, that, and the other thing in terms of the, the the terrible, obviously, Ukraine has been an absolute massacre. But ultimately, if you take the big geopolitical chess game that's in play, the timing of this moment is, I think, not a coincidence because what's the timing? The timing, of course, I see this moment a bit like we sort of, have, there was a narrative through COVID COVID was an accelerator of 
trends that were already underway uh, before COVID, uh, remote working uh, and all sorts of other less consequential things, perhaps. But nonetheless, this moment with Ukraine, we already had, you know, a a, a shifted global G1, G2, the geopolitical structure of the world, the rise of China was already obviously the biggest issue in global politics. It kind of dominated in many ways the, the Trump presidency. And this timing of the rise of China and, and, and its role in the world and posture in the world, and then you had the U.S., rightly or wrongly, but perceived to be withdrawing from its traditional role as the, as the guarantor of security in the Middle East, uh, and certainly as the major actor. I mean, if you go back to a singular moment in history, and maybe it's still too soon to point to it in deep, profound ways. But I think as history goes forward, it will continue to emerge as a deeply profound moment. Was Obama's red line on chemical weapons in Syria. The fact that he didn't defend that posture that he put down has put a shock. I mean, you could go back earlier than that with the Arab Spring and the West and America not willing to protect the survival of Mubarak in Egypt, the president of Egypt, who was overthrown by the street. But the security issue and the JCPO deal between the permanent members of the Security Council in Iran, uh, which obviously Trump sort of threw out, but the chemical weapon line in Syria, and America backed away from that and cons- putting any consequences. The, the Middle East has been in a state of chastity since that moment in terms of a perception that America is no longer, you know, can be relied on. Yeah, is is that the thing that America, once it put down the red lines and did nothing about it, then suddenly all the players in the Middle East say, okay, well, these guys are not actually serious, okay? They want the path of least resistance at all levels. That allows Putin to come into Syria, to dominate in Syria, Russia that ends up being a massive consequential power, a military power in the area, in a way it hadn't been even during the Cold War. And are you saying... So now Middle Eastern politics, because what I've I've noticed is, you know, UAE and Saudi Arabia didn't return Joe Biden's call a couple of weeks ago. You know, there's a there's a there's a serious frostiness between these two. It is it is it a sense now that the Middle East used to be in line with America. And now that's not the case anymore. And therefore they're slightly ambivalent on Russia as well. Well, it's certainly, I wouldn't put it yet into the bucket of it's not there anymore. I mean, I look out my window and I still see the U.S. Armada and I'll be able to go for a beer later because there is a very large dome of security protection in the Gulf that's still provided by the U.S. taxpayer. And thank you very much for that. But the uncertain outlook, the chess game of what's playing out now in the region where the future of China's rising, Iran perhaps coming back to some posture of presence, although this deal in Vienna is, again, not to use more Irish theatre parlance, but a bit waiting for Godot-like in the sense that it seems to be continuously two yards away from completion. But ultimately, these are changing the dynamic of the region And you're seeing, obviously, the most recent Israel agreement with the UAE and Bahrain, a very significant, you know, fairly fundamental shift as as the regional powers have to find new alignments for security 
because the uncertain overarching security blanket and everybody's immediate consciousness is the incredible images of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which were echoes of you know Vietnam 50 years previous, where the American posture looked quite fractured. And so all of that makes everybody here very nervous about where will the future go? And it gives them a little bit of bravado, as you say, about not returning Biden's calls. It's it's a bit like the jilted girlfriend, if you like, needing attention. There's ultimately In our many, case, it was usually the jilted boyfriend, but that's... Our boyfriend, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's many threads to that. And one very immediate one, of course, is this, the ongoing tragedy in Yemen, which the Houthi which are generally perceived to be supported by the Iranians, are are lobbing missiles into Saudi Arabia. And only today, yesterday, hit a fairly significant oil storage facility right close to actually where the Formula One race will be this weekend. You know, they are lobbing missiles across the Arabian Peninsula on regular occasion now. And the UAE and Saudi are very, very cross that the U.S. is not intervening and providing them with much greater security. And they also have the Houthis. They t- Biden took the Houthis off of the U- U.S. terrorist definition list, uh, which has the Saudis and, and other actors in the region really annoyed. And they want them back in that on that naughty boy list. Uh, and they want them dealt with. And in the midst of all of this, you have the Iran talks. And the, the, the P5 of the Security Council willing to concede a lot to Iran in order to get this deal back up on, on running. And one of them, again, on this sort of granular level of power politics, redefining at the moment the Iran Revolutionary Guard are also on the uh, terrorist list as defined by the U.S. government. And part of the deal, apparently delaying this final sort of last two yards of the Iran deal in Vienna, is the fact that they want the uh, Iran Revolutionary Guard taken off that list. And America, Washington seems to be willing to do so. And it has this region, the Saudis in particular, and the Israelis, it would have to be said, uh, fairly cross. So there's a lot of, when you think of these moments of in history, you have your 10,000-foot issues of global politics and China rising and America withdrawing and, uh, and energy flowing. You know, the irony of all of this is that the U.S. taxpayer not only paying for my security when I go out for my beer tonight, but also paying for the security of, you know, 20 million barrels of oil leaving the Gulf every day to go to Asia. Uh, and will that continue? Can that continue? And then you go down to 5,000-foot and down to sort of ground level. Sean, you you mentioned earlier there about the Saudis would get a better price for oil if they look to the East, to China. So with that, you know, tension between Saudi and America now and and the the Saudis getting annoyed at America for not supporting Yemen and all that kind of stuff, could they use that as a bargaining chip, the fact that they could switch their focus to the East and subsequently earn more money? Well, they are ultimately, I mean, the great challenge of this moment is that oil is very fungible uh, and gas is increasingly so. 
And that means, you know, no matter which way you direct it, you know, if you if you push it to the right, then, it, you know, and block it to the right, it's going to go to the left. It's like water going down a hill. It's going to get down that hill. You know, if, Russia, if Europe blocks Russia, oil and gas exports, they're going to end up somewhere. They're not going to just stay in the ground. Yeah. But ultimately, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and China, that's the real, the big sort of power play, if you like. And the oil, I mean, Saudi Arabia is currently much more concerned today about being the biggest oil supplier to China rather than to America, even though, of course, they still sell oil into America. But every month there is a data list published of who are the biggest oil suppliers into into China and into everywhere in the world, obviously. But the China one is a big one in terms of what it means geopolitically. And Saudi always likes to be on top, on the top of that list. Occasionally, Russia pips them, but they are very big suppliers to China. And that relationship and the Chinese, another thing to sort of add salt to the wounds of this moment, the president of China and the Chinese are pushing heavily for a major state visit to Riyadh in the coming weeks after Ramadan, in which, you know, the red carpet will be rolled out like they did for Trump a few years ago, which in of itself could be some really powerful symbolism. And Biden and the Democrats clearly are on the spectrum of relationships with Saudi Arabia. Biden is particularly persona non grata, the same way that the leadership, the current leadership of Saudi Arabia is kind of persona non grata to, to Washington. But the relationship at the moment is certainly in a bad place but it's still one of those, you know, forced marriages that is compelled to stay together. John, just before you go, the price of the petrol pumps here is going up and up. What do you think from everything you're seeing on the demand side and the supply side and these geopolitical problems diverting supplies away from Russia? Where are oil prices and energy prices going in the near term, next couple of months, for example? Well, I think you'd have to say it one and the first answer to that, which is, it's isn't it amazing how low oil prices are at the moment. You know, in you've got Russia, one of the world's biggest oil exporters, in a major war and under major sanction, and whether by you know design or default, a large volume of its oil will struggle to get to the markets. You've got this ongoing war in Yemen, lobbying missiles into the other biggest oil exporter in the world, Saudi Arabia, and oil prices are only one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel. And if you consider what $120 is today, and we know when we used to wait tables and do all of the nasty work in America when we were kids in college trying to earn 100 bucks, you know, it was 100 bucks used to be worth something. But when we had $100 oil, $100 plus oil from you know, 2010 to 2014, you know, it was certainly more impactful then. But $120 now is not ultimately as consequential as it was, but it's obviously consequential. That's, I'm being, I'm just sort of putting some context yep, to the reality no, of understanding that, you know, a can of Coke might cost, you know, five times what it did 10 years ago or whatever it is, but oil has always remained at very sober levels of price and its contribution to GDP, obviously how much oil you need in order to have GDP has decreased. But I think oil is in the immediate term, you know, again, coming back to the accelerator sort of uh, narrative, uh, we came into this crisis in Ukraine 
where the, the seed of this issue was buried many years ago when the lack of investment went into oil. You know, when you think what happened in 2014, on average, investment into what's called ENP, exploration and production, was about $750 billion a year in order to continue to uh, deliver new supply. And you have to remember that every year an oil well depletes by about 10% of its capacity. You just have to, you have to spend a huge amount of money just to stay in the same place. But for the years from 2015 to 2000 and whatever we're in now, oil investment into new ENP has collapsed. And obviously through COVID, it collapsed even further. So we have about seven or eight years of de- seriously depleted uh, oil investment And so this crisis of Ukraine and the disruption of the supply has accelerated us into an era of $100 oil that I had previously forecast we were going to get to around 2025. We've got there earlier and we're, in my sense, going to be more or less in that zone for the remaining of this decade, let's say. Now, in this immediate months and weeks, in the obviously with Ukraine and the scale of disruption, could oil go higher? Yes, it could go higher. Uh, I think there's like in 2008-9 when oil peaked at 147 and then the world economy fell off a cliff into recession. I think we're basically both those things are going to happen again. I just don't see how the world avoids getting into a global recession this year, mainly probably because the Fed have been so useless. And Jay Powell, I don't know how he got rehired, you know, temporary <laughs> inflation. I mean, it's just outrageous. Uh, but nonetheless, the Fed is going to be compelled to do double down on rate rises. We're going to have to shove, you know, the U.S. economy into a shock therapy on inflation because it's just out of control. And that's most likely going to be the trigger into global recession that will stop this rise in oil price rather than the oil price itself, because oil as a percentage of GDP growth and GDP activity, while burdensome, obviously, is uh, not as consequential at this moment as Fed rates. But prices could squeeze higher Obviously, in the first days of the war, we popped up to over 130 on Brent. There's no reason why we won't get back there and possibly even higher before the global recession really kicks in at the end of the year. Well, Sean, I hope to see you in Roundstone before all that happens. Sean Evers, great to talk to you. I'll see you early June. All right, mate. Take all care, Sean. Bye. Thanks, One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So... Mark, according to Sean there, we're headed for a global recession by the end of the year. Well, what he said is that what is true, that there has never been or not in the last 50 years, a global recession that hasn't been the result of or coincident with a spike in energy prices. Yeah. Right. Because always what happens is energy prices spike up. Central banks decide that they're going to bear down on inflation by increasing interest rates. And what they tend to try and do is to try and take the demand out of the economy. But the problem here is quite different, right? Here you have a situation where inflation is immediately the result of energy prices rising. Now, if you increase interest rates in order to bring down inflation, what you're increasing is the price of money. But we're talking about the price of energy. So I think the chances of, sorry, I think the chances of the central banks making a mistake are very, very high, i.e. they react to inflation by raising interest rates, which will have nothing to do with the price of energy and won't affect the price of energy at all, only through the very long-term idea, which is the recession brings down the demand for energy and you deflate through a recession. Now, that could be what we're facing. While I have you there, listen, I just want to say thank you so much to all our Patreons who really supported myself and John throughout the last nearly three years. Three years, wow. It's a long time. I thought it only started last week. It's such a good crack, though, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. It's like like having the dream gig. (laughs) Thank you very, very much. And if you do want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. You get ad-free you get courses, you get chats, you can ask me questions, all sorts of stuff, and you really become part of the gang. So that's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And again, thank you very much. Thank you.